0: We're in Romans chapter 11. It won't be a surprise if you've been with us for some time. We're looking at this wonderful epistle that God inspired Paul to write to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome is made up of Jews, and it's made up of Gentiles. And it's mostly Gentiles, both of which, Jews and Gentiles in that church, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But there seems to be some tension. There seems to be some issues that are arising between the majority Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians in the church. And so we started last week by looking at this passage that addresses that issue. In the context of what about Israel, Paul is now speaking directly to the Jews in Rome. And that's in Romans 11. I want to read to you 11 through 24. But we're looking at the last few verses 21 here. But it's always important to get the context. What we do here is expository preaching. And that's where a text is read, a text is explained, a text is applied. And we usually do that verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so that's what we're doing here today. I always want to set this context. Let's go back to verse 11, where he begins this conversation. 11, 11. I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? Did the nation of Israel... Even though they have now rejected the Messiah, the question comes up. Did they trip and fall to their death? And he says, may it never be. The nation is not finished. God's not finished with ethnic Israel. They did not fall so as to be ruined. But then now he goes to talk about what this has done for the Gentiles. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So Israel is made jealous because Gentiles are being saved. Israel did not believe. That's a sin. That's a transgression. Now the Gentiles are being saved as a result. Verse 12. So now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their fullness be? That's Israel. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough is holy and the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast against them, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then the kindness, And severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree. And were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree. This is part two of a sermon I entitled last week, The Rich Root of the Olive Tree. And we look then at the lessons that Paul is teaching in this passage. And I told you, there's so much here. There's so much with the the metaphor of the olive tree and the roots and the branches and so much theology packed in here that I didn't figure you wanted to be here for two hours to hear it last week. So I broke it up into two parts. I want to go through the first three truths that we looked at last week. And then I'll open up the last two. So there's five of those. Five basic truths, you might say. Or pillars or stakes in the ground. Five basics of the Gentile-Christian relationship to Israel. What is our relationship to Israel? Is there a relationship that Christians have to Israel? Is Israel finished? Is Israel done? Do we have any relationship to Israel? What about Israel's future? That is what we're looking at here in this passage. That's what 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans is about. If God's going to save people and they can never fall out of his hands and he'll never let them go and he will make sure they persevere, what about Israel? God, you made all these promises to Israel and yet they deny. They deny their Messiah. Many of them aren't saved. And so Paul has been giving these answers. He, he said in Romans 9 that God hasn't chosen all of Israel to be saved, every single individual throughout history that's a Jew. And in chapter 10, Paul said Israel didn't believe. And if the Jews don't believe, they can't be saved. They cannot be saved unless they have faith in Christ. Now he's wrapping it all up here in chapter 11 on the top of Israel. And he's going to tell us in verse 26 at the high point here of the chapter that all Israel will be saved. And so he's describing what's going on now in this time that the Gentiles are coming in. This time referred to often as just the history of the church, the time of the church. What is happening now is that Gentiles are being Grafted in to the olive tree. So the five basics of the Gentile-Christian relationship to Israel. First of all, last week we looked at the root of Israel. That ensures the branches will be saved. We need to go back and look at these first three points. Because they build. The argument's building here all the way to verse 24. The root of Israel ensures the branches will be saved. He said in verse 16, if the root is holy, the branches are too. If the root, the the base of the plant starts out as being set apart, that's what holy means and its most basic definition. To be set apart for God. God has set apart Israel. He set apart Abraham, the first Jew, for his purposes. Then the branches that come from that root will also be set apart. They will be holy. That's a certainty. He's saying that's a certainty, Paul is. It's just a fact of life. If it's a good root that you plant in the ground, then the thing that sprouts up from it is going to be good as well. And so his point there is, as a nation is concerned, not every individual, but the ethnic national Israel will be saved one day because of God's promises that he made to the root, which is Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. God made a covenant with Abraham. It applies to Abraham's descendants and Paul says that is the root, Abraham. God made a covenant with him. That covenant will be fulfilled. Secondly, last week, we also looked at the root of Israel supports Gentile believers. Gentile Christians must not be prideful over unbelieving Jews or even believing Jews because we're right now in the majority in the church. We cannot be prideful because the root supports the believing Gentile. That's like cutting off your spiritual ancestry if you just cut yourself off from that. The olive tree here being the description of God's people. You can't cut yourself off from the root. God's people is the olive tree. The root is Abraham. His physical descendants are certain branches. Some of them did not believe, so God cut them off. He took a pruning device. He cut them off. He severed them off. And then he's taken this wild olive. These Gentiles who knew nothing about God. They didn't have the promises of the covenant. And through faith in Christ, they're now grafted in. But they're grafted in to the root. And you can't say that God's done with the root. You can't say that God is done with his promises that he made to the other branches. We should not boast. We should not be prideful. It's all of God's grace. That was the point. What do you have to boast about if it's in faith? Faith in Christ that you're saved. By God's grace that you're saved. If you have faith, that's saying, I can't save myself. That's saying, only God can save me through his Messiah, through his Savior, through his Son. You have nothing to boast in. What did you do? Did you cut yourself from the wild olive tree and put yourself into the cultivated olive tree? Not at all. God did that. You would still be outside the covenants. You would still be outside the promises of God. If he didn't do that for you. So there's nothing to boast about. And then the third point last week. Faith in Christ keeps the branches grafted into the tree. It's only through faith. There's not two ways of salvation. There's not be a Jew or be a Christian. There's not obey the law or have faith. There's one way of salvation. That's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the Gentile Christian stands upon that faith in Jesus Christ. Not any other kind of arrogant boasting. Anything you've done. Any work that you've done. Faith is not something to boast in. You can't boast in your faith. So instead of being prideful, instead of being haughty, or the word here is lofty in your thinking about yourself, you need to fear God. You need to have a reverential fear of God. That's where we ended last week. You need to have this awe of God that He would take you as you were on a wild olive tree, this this little bush that produces no good fruit, and He puts you into the good tree, the cultivated tree, the tree that you could get the rich sap from and produce good fruit. You ought to have a fear of God instead of boasting. He broke some of the branches off, not all of the Jewish branches, some of the Israelite branches were broken off and he grafted in many believing branches from the Gentiles. We must fear him for that. We must have the right kind of awe towards God for that. So that was the first three. Now we look. At the last two. These are looking again. Five basics of the Gentile Christian relationship to Israel. So number four. Number four is the kindness. And severity of God. Determines. Which branches remain. Again we're back to God. It's not about us. It's not about what we're doing. We're not building history. We're not doing the purposes of God. We're part of it. We're being saved by God. We're in this master plan that God has, but it's the kindness and severity of God that's mentioned here. Professing Christians who do not remain in the faith is what Paul's going to tell us here. Professing Christians who do not remain in the faith and they show it by being arrogant and they show it by being prideful, they're going to be pruned off. Because a prideful, arrogant Christian who continues to be that way, even when corrected, is not a Christian at all. And they'll be... Pruned off from the tree they say they're a part of. Look at verse 21. Right after he said, Fear God, have fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. That's serious. That's not feel good, leave the church today, feeling great about yourself. This is fearing God. If God did not spare the natural branches that he's already broken off, he'll not spare you either. Unless you have true fear of God, true faith, continuing faith. These natural branches, literally the text in Greek reads, those according to nature. They're the physical descendants of Abraham. They had a physical connection all the way back to Abraham and God still broke them off. If he can do that, he can break the professing Christian who ends up denying the faith off as well. The Jews said, I... Rely upon Abraham as my descendant, as my forefather. Therefore, you have to give me these promises. And God said, no, I don't. It's through faith. Even Abraham had faith. Paul opened up that whole doctrine of justification by faith in Romans 4. And he said, your father Abraham had faith. Be like him, Jews. Be like him and trust in the Lord. And yet the Jews relied on their heritage. They relied on their obedience. And God broke Some of those branches off. Because of that. They were not spared. They were relying on the wrong things. Not the Messiah. Who was coming from Abraham's seed. The Messiah who would save them. So if God has not spared. The natural branches. Do you think he's going to spare? The Gentile who says they're a Christian. But ends up not living the Christian life. Not actually living out their faith. Not remaining in the faith. These are unnatural branches. They don't even have a natural connection. God's not going to leave them on there if they shouldn't have been there in the first place. If they prove to be unbelievers by their pride over the Jews. Tom Schreiner says that Paul insists here in the strongest possible terms that no one can presume upon God's grace and imagine that blessing will be theirs regardless of their continuance in the faith. It's a presumption. It's to say... Well, I said I was saved at a certain point in my life, and therefore, I'm going to heaven. Therefore, all these promises are mine. Therefore, I'm on the tree and will always be on the tree that is being described here. I did this when I was in church camp as a youth. I did this when I was a kid. My parents baptized me before I could even realize what was happening. Therefore, I will be in heaven someday. That's presuming upon God. The text, as we're going to see... Puts emphasis on where you are right now. Where you are right now. If you're being arrogant. If you're being boastful over the Jews. Over anyone because you have been saved. If you think you did it. If you think you were holy. And you obeyed all the laws. And so God chose you. That is completely backwards. To what scripture says. And Paul is warning us here. God is warning us here. That you better be careful. He's not going to spare you. He broke the Jews off for that very reason that didn't believe in the Messiah. And a professing Christian can live in such a way that they deny the Lord either by denying the faith outright with their words or denying the faith with their life, with their walk. So look how he continues this in verse 22. Behold, behold then the kindness and severity of God. Behold is a command here. It's an imperative. Pay special attention. Take notice, Gentile. Look closely at these two things that we know to be true about God. He's kind and he's severe in his judgment. Remember those two things. Remember God's attributes is the idea. Remember who God is. This is how you have the fear of God. You remember who God is. You study the Bible. You learn about God. You learn from the scriptures. You have a right theology of God. And you don't think of this idea that God is always loving. And all he cares about is our happiness. And we can do whatever we want. And even if we sin. God's just going to turn away. And not look at that. And not care about that. Paul says. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Take notice. Remember these things. Kindness is the quality of being helpful or beneficial. It's God's goodness. It's God's kindness. It's God's generosity. And this is described in the Bible two different ways. God is, is kind and generous to all people. That's called his common grace. He brings rain even upon the unjust, even upon the unbelievers. He, he brings food and, and marriage and children and happiness and good times, even on people who don't follow him. That's God's common grace. That's mentioned back in Romans 2, 4, this exact word for kindness. Paul writes to the Jews, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God gave you all these nice things. You unbelieving Jews, that should point you to him. It should drive you to him. That should drive you to repenting and feeling like you're not worthy of all these good things that God has given you. But here, in Romans eleven twenty-two, this is God's special grace. His saving grace. His kindness in showing grace, forgiving your sins through your faith in Christ. Forgiving your sins and giving you Christ's righteousness. Paul's opened all those doctrines up earlier in Romans. And God forgives those who have faith in Christ. That's God's kindness. And Paul says, remember that. Remember that the branches that he grafts in, that's his kindness, that's his grace, that's his mercy. But there's also severity. Severity. Only here mentioned in the New Testament, this Greek word. And it means to act with hardness, to show harshness. Not that God is sinful in the way he shows harshness. It's talking about his judgment here. It's talking about his judgment on sinners who say they're his but they actually are not. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord, Peter says in his epistles. One scholar said that what this means here, this word, is that those who do not cleave to God's goodness are threatened by the inflexible hardness and severity. That's the idea of the judge as the only alternative. This is what it means to not be spared. God will show you, severity. It's serious. It's the fear of God here. You you either get God's kindness or you get the severity. You don't get both. As a Christian, you have a fear of God, but he's not being severe to you if you're a true believer. But for those who are false believers, for those who are self-deceived, for those who are boasting and saying, look at me, I'm so special, I'm a Gentile, I earned God's grace, I did such and such. Severity, Paul says. To those who fell, they got severity. For, to those Jews who fell, they did fall so as to be permanently ruined. This here is speaking of individual Jews who denied the Messiah. They denied the Messiah. Now, he says Israel, the same Greek word back in 11.11. 11, Israel as a whole has not fallen. They are not run. The nation, the elect nation, God has still got his eternal plan with them. But there are individual Israelites who have denied the Messiah. And they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Christ, so as to fall. He's speaking here of individual Israelites who've not believed. God has shown them severity. He's shown them judgment because they did not believe. And they fell. They're being crushed by the stone. That's a judgment God has shown. But to you, he's talking to the Gentiles in Rome. He's talking to us Gentile Christians today. But to you, God's kindness. If you're truly his, he's shown you kindness. And look how he qualifies it. It's not just the person who said they were a Christian. It's not just the person who said 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I claim to be a Christian. Look what he says. If you continue in his kindness. It's not about what you did in the past. As of right now and going forward. There are many people who stand right here and they give their testimony. And you know what we often hear? I thought I was saved from the time I was five. I thought I was saved from when I was a teenager. I thought I was saved, but I didn't live the Christian life. I didn't love the Lord. I didn't read my Bible. I didn't do anything. And then one day, I was really saved. Things changed. My relationship with sin changed. My relationship with the Lord changed. That's clearly when I was saved. And before that, I was just self-deceived. Paul is saying, if you continue in his kindness, the only way... To to crush this arrogant, boastful pride is to continue in faith. To continue in faith, which shows that you're in the kindness of God. And you remember his severity. You don't forget about it. You don't tell people, you know, God loves you no matter what you want to do. Everybody's going to heaven. Don't worry about that. No, you remember there is a severity to judgment. But God shows kindness to those who trust in Christ. So when you consider that, when you study that, when you meditate on these attributes, you realize, really, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. What have I done? What really have I done to earn or expect anything from God? It's all his grace. Once again, he must continue in that faith. Douglas Moo says, we must not become so focused here on the theology of Paul's teaching that we miss its purpose. The purpose is to criticize those of us who are Gentiles for arrogance toward believing and unbelieving Jews, to remind us that our own spiritual heritage is a Jewish one. You're connected to the Jewish line that goes back to the root, the root called Abraham. We have to realize that. We weren't there when Abraham received that covenant. We weren't there during the biblical times. We weren't involved with the starting of the church. We're 2,000 years later, and yet we still receive... The kindness of God because of the death that his son died on the cross for us. We're nothing. We did not do it. We weren't there for it. We weren't part of it. And yet God has grafted us in. He showed us kindness. He showed us grace. He gets the glory. It's like that hymn. We sometimes sing this. Many hymnals have changed the wording. It's the hymn at the cross, which says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for what? Such a worm as I. This is not bad theology here to say that. He's saying when we compare ourselves to God, we're like a worm. Not that life isn't sanctified, not that we shouldn't protect the unborn life. What he's saying here, though, is compared to God's perfect holiness, compared to God's perfect kindness. Compared to God's grace. We're like a worm. And we should leave those words in. Because the, the hymn writers had a theology behind that. That I think we've lost so much in today's churches. So he says, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, what's the other alternative? Still, in verse 22, you will be cut off. You will be cut off. To sever here. The word means to chop the branch off with an axe. To be. Eternally condemned is what this means. If you don't continue in the faith, it doesn't matter what you've said, what you've done, what your church membership role looks like, what your history in the church looks like. If you don't continue in the faith, what he's talking about here is apostasy. Apostasy is turning away from the faith, turning away from Christ. Now, we're all familiar with those who deny the Lord. They say they were Christians, then they deny the Lord, and then they do a website or a Facebook page to tell everybody how they denied the Lord. It's called deconstructing these days. We're deconstructing from our conservative Christian upbringing. What sometimes we overlook, though, is people deny the Lord through their actions. They say they're a Christian, but nothing in their life looks Christian at all. Nothing in their life matches the scripture. That's not being legalistic. That's just taking people to compare themselves to the scriptures. When you tell somebody, if you ever do, and this comes up in counseling sometimes, I'm not sure you're a Christian. You better go to the scriptures to make that case. You better go to the Bible to make that case. Don't just throw out all your opinions, which might be legalistic. Take them to the Bible. It's the word of God that they need to compare it to. And what does God's word say? That you must remain in his kindness. Well, how do you do that? Well, you remain in the faith. That's one of the main evidences That you're remaining in the faith. Is that you're killing things in your life that are sinful. Like pride. Like boasting over the Jew. Like boasting over the other Gentiles who haven't come to saving faith. By being arrogant. By being haughty. By being in your mind thinking that you're special. You are special in the sense that Christ died for you. You're not special in the sense that you earned anything from the Lord. So how does God encourage a person to remain in his kindness? Well, this is called the perseverance of the saints. He gives us his grace to persevere. And one of the ways he does that is to encourage us with Bible verses like this. He's not saying the elect can lose their salvation. He would be contradicting himself just a few chapters earlier. If you look at the end of chapter 8. He says in verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Affliction? No. Turmoil? No. Persecution? No. Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? No. What he's doing here with this verse and many other verses we'll look at is he's warning Christians, Stay true. Stay faithful. Keep growing in the faith. Keep growing in your sanctification. Pursue holiness. Don't just say, that you were saved, and then go live like the world. How does God encourage a believer to persevere? He puts scripture verses in the Bible that as we read it, and as we hear them preach like this, we're encouraged to persevere. And we have a true fear of God, and we want to persevere. We want to grow in our holiness and our sanctification, which is evidence that we're persevering. Jeremiah 32 speaks of the new covenant. And this is what brings Gentiles in and attaches them to the Abrahamic covenant. Jeremiah 32, 40, And I will cut an everlasting covenant with them, and that I will not turn away from them, to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, so that they will not turn away from me. So when it comes to God's sovereignty, we realize the Bible says a true believer, God's elect who comes to saving faith, will not lose their salvation. And yet, we have passages like this that tell us, if you remain in the faith, encouraging us to persevere. That's what it means here. He's encouraging us to continue in the faith and warning us what would happen if we didn't. If it turns out we're not truly believers, then there's going to be severity. John Calvin said, though this cannot happen to the elect, they have yet need of such warning in order to subdue the pride of the flesh. So let's look at a few verses in other places that speak of this. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 24, 13. He summarizes it in a short statement here. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Well, I thought salvation was justification. Well, it is. Sometimes the Bible speaks of justification as being the same as salvation. And you can say, I am saved. Or I was saved in July of 2020. When I heard the gospel and believed. That's not wrong. Paul talks like that. Past tense, saved. Sometimes at a few places, Paul is talking about being saved. Present tense, ongoing. There he's looking at sanctification, producing fruit. I think that's what he's talking about here in Romans 11. And then there's also the future. I will be saved. That's what Jesus is talking about here. There will be a salvation. At the judgment, you won't be judged. You will get your resurrected body. You will spend eternity. That's future tense. So salvation, the word, can encompass all of those things. It's always important to study in context what scripture is talking about here. But yes, justification in in an instant, in a moment, the minute you have faith. Sanctification throughout your life. Final sanctification and glorification when you go to be with the Lord and eventually are resurrected. Let's jump forward to John 15, 6. Here Jesus opens it up. He's talking about the vine. Again, using a a horticultural uh, metaphor here. And he says that if you remain attached to the vine, you're going to produce good fruit. And if you, if you don't produce fruit, the vine will be, your, your part of the branch will be cut. So in John 15, 6, he says, if anybody does not abide in me, you don't remain in Christ. He's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and then cast them into the fire and they're burned. That's what we do with branches that we trim off the tree. We just trimmed some branches on a Friday. We put them in the the pile in the backyard. They're going to dry out. And one day when there's not a burn ban and it's rained, we're going to burn the brush in our backyard. That's what you do with dry branches. And here he's saying they're going to be burned with fire, connecting that to eternal punishment. They said they were part of the vine. They said they were connected, but they weren't. They didn't actually have true saving faith. They were snipped off. Are they going to be burned? Continuing on here, he says, if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He says, My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And I look at this, so prove to be my disciples. You're not earning your salvation. You're claiming that you already have it, and you show that through the fruit. If you had it, if you had true justification, then that will show up and the fruit you produce. If you didn't, then there won't be any fruit that follows it. That's what Jesus is saying. Salvation is not dependent on something you said in your past. It shows itself over time, though, if you're living out the Christian life, producing fruit. Colossians 1.20, Paul speaks again of this. This idea that you must remain in the faith. They must continue to have faith for these promises to apply. Colossians 1.20, he says, If indeed, All of these things I'm talking about in Colossians 1 apply to you, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast. Not somebody who says they're in the faith, but they're tossed about by the wind, pulled out of the ground, thrown around into another camp, deny the faith, go into heresy. No, you have to remain firmly grounded and steadfast in the truth, in the gospel, in Christ, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. There's one gospel. And it's not the gospel that tried to come into the Galatian church where you have to do all these works and add that to your faith. There's one gospel. And as long as you stay rooted and grounded in that, you show yourself to be a true believer. Apostasy, though, shows that a person was never actually born again. It's not that they lost their salvation. Apostasy just means they weren't actually saved to begin with. These people that are deconstructing today, So many of these Christian music artists, they weren't saved to begin with. They said they were. They started a band. They made lots of money. They switched over to the the worldly side of singing. And suddenly they're deconstructing. Why? Because they didn't have a new heart. They didn't have a heart change. John talks about this. 1 John 2.19, if you want to go there. 1 John 2.19, you probably heard this one. They went out from us. He's talking about people who split off from the church. They left the church. He said they went out from us. And there's this this issue with the doctrine and deity of Christ. And the humanity of Christ. And all these heresies that are circulating through the churches. And a bunch of people left. And they said they were the true church. And John says they went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they were of us. He says they would have remained with us. Why? Because Because John has the truth. John knows the truth. John heard it from Christ. John has inspired scripture that has been written to the churches. He knows the truth. And they didn't have it. They left. But they went out, he says, so that it would be manifested that they are all not of us. Not all of them are of us. They left. They left because they believed a false teaching and split off. So what Paul's getting at, back to Romans 11 here, with all all of that in context, is that those who are genuine believers will endure in the faith. They will. Because they're kept secure by God, yes. They're kept secure by God. But also because of these warnings that we see and they remind us. I have to throw one more in since we have time. Let's go to Hebrews 3.12. Hebrews is full of warnings. And you know what? Too many Christians today here Maybe from their pastors and church leaders. Don't worry about those warnings. Don't read those warnings. Certainly you shouldn't read Hebrews then. Because it is full of warnings. It's so full of warnings. That it confuses a lot of scholars. As to what's going on here in the book. So Hebrews 3.12. See to it brothers. So he calls them brothers. He calls them brothers. He calls them Christians. But he says see to it. That there are not any of you. Uh, Any among you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Let me read that again with with a little more clarity here with my eyesight. (laughs) That that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But he just called them brothers. There's something we need to think about here. And I'm glad we went here. It reminded me to say the apostles aren't omniscient. Sometimes Christians read this and they say, well, God knows if I'm saved or not. But Paul doesn't know that. Paul has been inspired by God to write to the churches. He's writing all of these things. And I think Paul wrote Hebrews. But whoever wrote Hebrews, if you want to pick a different author, that's fine. They write to the churches. They have encouragement. They have exhortation. They have warnings. But they don't know if everybody's a Christian there. In fact, most churches have some some unbelievers mixed in. So he calls them brothers. He's, He's expecting the best out of them. Make sure there's not any among you that have an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And here's how you do that. You encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why do you need hard preaching on sin from the pulpit? So that you have a soft heart that believes and continues to believe and continues to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It was John MacArthur who said that hard preaching makes a soft heart, and soft preaching makes a hard heart. Hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. He goes on, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. We've got to hold fast. Yes, He will hold us fast, but we're also called to hold fast. There's God's sovereignty, and there's man's responsibility, and they go together. Verse 15, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Talking about Israel. Israel said at Mount Sinai that they would follow the Lord. Yes, you're our God, Yahweh. We will follow you. And what did they do? They denied him. They didn't believe the report from the spies who went into the land. They said, no, God, don't take us into the land. You'll just let us be massacred. And he says, fine. Forty years, you're all going to die in the wilderness. And the new generation will rise up. I'll take them into the land. Don't harden your hearts. Because they provoked God in the wilderness. Verse 16, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we, talking about Christians, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Make sure, he tells the church, make sure there's no unbelievers among you that are hardening their heart even more or even so-called professing believers who are continuing in sin and hardening their heart to sin. Don't presume upon God. Don't say because you've signed a card, because you threw a pine cone into the fire, because you got dunked at some point, that automatically saves you. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, let him who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. If you think you stand, if you think you stand based on your own doing, you're going to fall. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves. Why would you say that, Paul? Because he doesn't know if there's any unbelievers mixed into the Corinthian church, in fact, they're living so sinfully in Corinth that it's to be expected some have slipped in. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. That's a command. Everybody must examine their own heart. We say that every time we take communion. Every time communion, communion goes out, we warn believers, examine yourself. Or do you not recognize, Paul says, about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. See, Christianity is about reality. And reality, when it comes to salvation, is knowing where your own heart is at. Being real with yourself. Not faking it. Not covering it up. Not saying, you know what, that's no big deal. You know, a little bit of sin here, a little bit of sin there. Test yourself, Paul says. Yes, we all stumble, but we get back up and we pursue the Lord once again. These people don't get back up and pursue the Lord once again. They take a wrong path and continue down it. And eventually it gets found out. There might be church discipline. There might just disappear. But we have to examine ourselves. Is your life one of boasting about your spiritual accomplishments? If someone was to ask you, why are you saved? Would the first words out of your mouth be something other than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for me? Would you say, well, I did X, Y, Z? Take careful notice here, Paul says, of the kindness and severity of the Lord. Know the difference and take notice and fear the Lord. That was number four. Number five, the very last basic here, basic truth. That he discusses. Now he comes back full circle. He's been talking to the Gentile. Now he says. Number five. Gentile grafting proves. A great future Israelite grafting. If the Gentiles have been grafted in. How much greater he's saying. Is it going to be. When the Israelites. Who as a nation had mostly rejected God. But eventually. They're going to be brought in. And grafted back into the tree. God has broken some off. He broke them off in Paul's day. He's still breaking them off today, talking about the the physical attachment that they had to Abraham. He's breaking them off if they don't believe. While he's been speaking to the Gentiles, he's telling them and reminding them once again that God is going to save Israel. Verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue, in their unbelief. Just like we Gentiles should remain in the faith, well, if they remain in their unbelief, they'll be judged. Severity. If they don't continue in their unbelief, which means they have faith, they'll be grafted in. God is an impartial God. Yes, he stays true to his promises, but it's only through faith. And he can't say that it's only through faith and then let some people, you know, slip in along the side not having faith. Of course not. God doesn't change. He doesn't change his promises. He doesn't change his ways. God is immutable. Israel doesn't get a free pass because they're a physical seed of Abraham. They must have faith too. So he's saying in, in the coming days, in the future, they're going to believe. He'll make that more clear as we go here. But if they turn from their unbelief to faith, which the Bible says they will in mass do someday, then he says they will be grafted in. Look, they will be grafted in. Future tense. For God is able to graft them in again. He's powerful to do that. Not just powerful enough to do that, but he's willing. He desires that. That's his plan, in other words. Of course God is able to do that. He's the great master gardener. He's the one who trims off. He's the one who attaches and grafts in. He can take those dry, dead, dusty bones of Ezekiel 37 and call them to life again. And put sinew and meat and skin and a heart in that person a heart for him, he can call the dead to life. The great commentator Robert Haldane from the 1800s, he had this Bible study in in Switzerland, and he went there to evangelize. And what ended up happening is a lot of Jews would come to his evangelism, and some got saved as a result of that, what was going on there in Geneva. He wrote this commentary on Romans, and Banner of Truth now publishes it today. He says, here then is Paul's implicit denial that national Israel has been irrevocably cast aside. Otherwise, such a comment would be out of place here. If God has previously determined that Israel has been permanently rejected as a nation, surely Paul would not imply the opposite in declaring that God is able to save them, unless his power could not rise to conquering their unwillingness. Yeah, they've rejected. They've rejected the Lord, but God can overcome that. Doesn't he grant us faith? You rejected the Lord at one time. Either you heard the gospel and rejected it many times, Or you never heard the gospel, but we're running from God anyway. God overcame your unbelief. You say, well, I had faith. Yeah, but the Bible says God granted you that faith. God gave you a new heart to believe. He granted you repentance. And you can't even boast in that. Yes, you must have faith. That's your responsibility. But you can't boast in that. Israel can be grafted back in. God is able to do it. But they must have faith, which is required for salvation. Lastly, verse 24 here. Now, he's going to make an argument. If if God is doing this right now with the Gentiles, imagine what he's going to do with the Israelites in the future. Look at this. Carefully look at the tenses of the verbs. If you were cut off, that's past tense, talking to the Gentiles. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree. So you were cut off from the wild olive tree and you were grafted in, past tense, contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. That's the root, which is Abraham. And it's growing up into the olive tree of the people of God. And some branches were cut off because they were unbelieving Jews. And believing Gentiles were grafted in. If God can do that. If God can take you that were not physically connected to the covenants. And put you in. How much more? How much more? Will these future tents, these Jews, these Israelites, who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. It's theirs by nature in the sense that there's a natural descent here. That's all he's saying. He's not saying they have a spiritual advantage. They do when it comes to having the scriptures. Paul's already talked about that in Romans 3. They, they grow up with the Bible. But if they don't believe, that has no benefit for them. They don't have a natural advantage by being a descendant of Abraham. But certainly... If they are descendants of Abraham, how much more natural is that for God to connect them back into the root? How much more will, future tense, those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? He's real clear, it's their own olive tree. He promised Abraham and his descendants. Yeah, if you don't believe, then you're not going to get those promises. But God can graft them back in if they believe. Paul's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God's powerful enough to take you, you barbarian, uncircumcised Philistines, and graft you in to the people of God, he can certainly take the people who physically descended from Abraham, will call the people of God, then they believe and put them back in. That's a more natural connection. Just speaking of the metaphor here of the olive tree. This verse speaks not in the present tense, not in the past tense, but the future tense. The point is, if God is doing such amazing things right now with the unnatural branches, imagine what it's going to be like to see him save all Israel, as he's promised to do in Romans eleven twenty-six. 26. He's not only able to do it, he's willing, or you could say, decreed that it would happen. J.C. Rowell, in the 1800s, he believed in the Millennial Kingdom. He was an Anglican, but he believed in the Millennial Kingdom. He believed that God would save all Israel. He says, To my eyes... As he looks at these passages, the future salvation of Israel as a people, the return to Palestine, and their national conversion to God appear as clearly and plainly revealed as any prophecy in God's Word. So there are promises being made here to Israel. Only through faith, though. Only through faith. And If you're hearing this message today, whether in the room or online, you have to ask yourself, are you connected to this tree? You can pontificate all day about theology and Israel and and Gentile, and the relationship between the two. But if you're not connected in faith to this root, this promise that God has given, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that if we believe in Christ the Messiah, that one who comes from Abraham to save us, then this is just a nice little Bible study you attended. We're glad you're here. But you need to trust in Christ for salvation. What becomes just a little nice Bible study It will be even greater to you. It will mean so much more when you realize he's talking about you in this passage. You're that wild olive that he took over here and put in the cultivated tree. These promises get applied to you. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the the cleansing of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit within you. That's the great joy of a Christian. Being with the Lord forever, never sinning anymore. Being forever with him in eternity yeah, there's a struggle in this life. If you become a Christian today and trust in the Lord, you're not going to have it easy. But eternally speaking, you will be blessed. You will be with the Lord forever. And it all goes back to his promises that he made, not in the New Testament, but all the way back that he made in the book of Genesis in the beginning of the Bible. Lord, we thank you for so many doctrines being revealed to us here in this passage. So much truth. I pray that we would examine our own hearts as Paul calls us to do, that we would remain in the faith. Lord, if there's so many here not remaining in the faith, challenge them, prick their heart, prick their conscience. We love everyone, Lord. We love sinners. We don't condone their sin, God, but we love them like you do, and we want to see them saved. So I pray that they would know where they stand with you. They would come to you if they're not with you now. They would trust in the Messiah, Jesus, and run away from the severity and come to the kindness of you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our mighty Savior. Amen.